This is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. And this episode is a toast to Tom Eagle. So when you shred it and then you add the salt, the salt helps keep the yeast under control, um, but in turn allows lactic acid bacteria, which are quite tolerant of salt, to take over. So salting it, the salting and macerating with your hands kind of draws the juice out the sauerkraut, which again, under the juice, you're providing a, an environment without any oxygen which again most bacteria need oxygen to survive lactic acid bacteria don't so they're thriving in that as they take over they start eating the sugars that are in there and giving off acid in turn so the environment gets more and more acid the fermentation in that case is you're basically pickling the cabbage in the naturally the natural acid from the bacteria rather than by adding any acid yourself so within like a week, you can see it happening because it gets more juicy, it goes bubbly, it starts going cloudy. If you do it with red cabbage, you can see it particularly happening because it changes colour when it's uh, very acidic. It goes this kind of really bright, shocking purple rather than like dark purple. So within like a week, you've got quite an acidic environment and by that point you've got a pickle, basically. Everything, all vegetables anyway, are covered in yeasts and bacteria and if you just cut them up and leave them, one of those things is going to take over and start doing something. Um, so all you're doing with sauerkraut is kind of easing that process in one direction. So when you're making sauerkraut, which I had never done before I did so for the purpose of this episode, after you've macerated the cabbage with the salt for a few minutes... You leave it to sit in its own juice. And it does this very faint fizzing. I guess it's just a reaction between the water that's come out of the cabbage and the salt. And maybe it's even the bacteria. I don't even know. But it's almost too quiet to hear on the recording amidst the birds singing and the nursery that's very conveniently just opened up right next to my flat. But that. That is the sound of sauerkraut. Not the plane, the other bit. It's a peculiar magic of chucking a bit of salt on some shredded cabbage and massaging it with your hands until it transforms from dry and squeaky to soft, pliant and squelchy. I say magic, but it's just science, really. If you follow Lekka on Twitter, that's at Lekka Podcast. You might know that I'm slightly obsessed with pickles. And that's one of the reasons I was so looking forward to talking to this episode's guest, Tom Eagle. He is a food writer and head pickler, sorry, head chef at Little Duck, the pickleery. Tom's got a book coming out this week, in fact. It's called First Catch and is being published by Quadrille on the 5th of April. If you're listening to this on the day of release, then there is still time to get your pre-orders in. And if you're listening later, then it's already out and you've got no excuse. I met Tom and his adorable dog Philo at his flat in Dalston to talk about why First Catch isn't a recipe book, cooking for yourself versus cooking for a living, and of course, pickles. I've been writing about food for a while and was thinking about doing something longer, um, but I, I knew I didn't want to write a straightforward recipe book. I think there's 
kind of oversupplied with recipe books, if anything. Um, <laughs> and they tend to be a bit, unless you've got a particular area of expertise or whatever, they tend to be a bit samey. So I wanted to write something that was almost like an anti-recipe book. So at first the idea was that it would just be centred around one recipe and you'd never actually get the recipe. It'd be too busy with digressions to ever get there at all. Um, until someone pointed out that would be really irritating. <laughs> um, so I took that idea to an agent and uh, my agent Federica said why, why don't you expand it slightly into a meal like all the dishes that make up a meal rather than like a whole recipe book with 50 or 100 recipes in just kind of focus on that one thing and focus about the eating of it and stuff as well so the, yeah the idea of it is that there's a lot more to cooking and to eating than just these straightforward recipes um, there's a lot more that's kind of surrounds it so I wanted to like take the space to go into that so it's obviously a very appropriate release date for your book because it is study of a spring meal. Mm-hmm. What characterises spring in terms of food for you? Is there sort of things that you start craving when the weather gets a bit better and it gets a bit lighter? And what what does that mean to you? Yeah, definitely. There's obviously the ingredients that are coming through. So throughout winter, you just have endless kale and chard and brassicas, which are nice, but... Uh get a bit tiresome um (laughs) you get the first kind of few like radishes and the spring leaves and things like asparagus I think springs I don't think England does summer particularly well like we have strawberries um tomatoes but they're not as good as Mediterranean tomatoes (laughs) here I think spring and autumn are kind of where British food's at its best there's kind of slightly rainy in between seasons where you get like the first of things so spring's like the first opportunity for like lighter meals and kind of thinking about outdoor meals and um the kind of more simply prepared food rather than like elaborate roasts and braises and stuff that you might eat throughout winter. I like the differentiation between recipe book and book about cooking, mm. I guess, because even cookbook seems a bit like food book, yeah. I guess, covers it. Um, what are your favourite non-recipe food books? I think a lot of my favourite writers in that kind of vein are more more American writers. They seem to take food writing a lot more seriously than yeah, British writers. Definitely. Like MFK Fisher is the big one. Um, I was introduced to her a few years ago and that wow. was just like, kind of blew open the idea of what you could write about food really. Because she, obviously in her earlier stuff, she does have some recipes, but she barely writes recipes really. Especially in her later stuff, it's kind of biography that's centred around mealtimes, which is quite interesting. So writers like her, more modern writers like Tamar Adler, who wrote An Everlasting oh, Meal. Okay. Um, cool. It was serialised in The Guardian a while ago. It's kind of a similar concept, but her idea is that cooking is like cooking as a continual process for home cooking. So say taking the leftovers from one meal and like starting again the next day. So with those. That's really nice. Yeah. yeah, it's a really nice book. And then you've also got people like Sami Nosrat, uh, her new book, newish book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Oh, yes. I still, I need to get that. That's it's very good. <laughs> it's really yeah. Good. But equally, a lot of the writers I was interested in were not food writers at all. Maybe not the, the book in its final form, but when I was kind of thinking about it, writers who I was, I was interested in were some of the kind of modern nature and science writers, people like Robert McFarlane. Okay, yeah. Um, and people influenced by like... W.G. Seabold and that kind of that like very digressionary, uh, very personal approach to nature writing, which I thought like nature writing is kind of science writing, food writing is kind of science writing. Like, why can't you take the same like very personal, um, non-academic approach? Yeah, that's very it? true. And I think a lot of um, 
food writing like it's not necessarily we don't quite know where to place it because like is it culture is it science is it is it memoir is is it, it, yeah. yeah and it's it almost ends up not being taken that seriously and just lumped yeah, in, which, I think so. yeah I think is a shame because like you say you can centre almost everything that happens in your life around food yes, <laughs> if you want if to if you want to yeah <laughs> Um, when did you start cooking professionally? I cooked professionally briefly before I went to university. I got a gap year, well, gap, I took two gap years. Um, I just got a job, uh, a kitchen porter in a hotel. Gap year seems the wrong word to use in that yeah. context, doesn't it? <laughs> I started taking gap year, went travelling, ran out of money, came back, <laughs> got a job, yeah, just washing up and then kind of prepping and doing like commie chef work. And where was that? Uh, that was in Canterbury. It was a crappy hotel. Um, <laughs> but I really enjoyed it and got quite into cooking then. And then throughout uni, I cooked a lot and read a lot of cookery writing as well. And then, because I always thought I'd write or go into academia or something. But then by the end of my degree, I was kind of fed up with the whole thing. What did you study? I did American literature. Wow, UA. okay. I really enjoyed it. But... My final year was just a bit of a struggle. Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> and yeah, I just wanted to do something practical and something kind of making something with my hands and like the one monetizable skill I guess I had was <laughs> cooking. So I uh, just got a job in a restaurant in Norwich and then cool. kind of went from there really. And did you find, I mean, I guess because you, it's not like you were cooking for yourself already and then you trained to be a chef, it's been sort of almost like a concurrent process. Yeah. But has the way that you cook for yourself at home changed because of, it's your job if you like definitely yeah well I do a lot less of it (laughs) if anything um I find it just makes me a lot I cook a lot more simply at home because uh obviously at work you're always kind of well it's not like I work in a really fancy restaurant but um everything's obviously of a certain standard you're kind of Of using very interesting ingredients and doing all this stuff so I tend to kind of at home I either cook things which take about two minutes or if I've got a day off I'll take the entire day and do something like a big project but there's less of the kind of day-to-day creative cooking at home because I'm doing that of course work, yeah basically. is there anything that you kind of you're not allowed not not allowed but is there anything that wouldn't be appropriate for you to cook at work that you kind of really relish cooking at home again this is like this would be more of a cooking kind of big celebration meals we don't do much kind of Frenchified cooking at work. Sure. So if like I want to get out the cream and the butter and <laughs> splash red wine over everything, that's something I do at home. Like I made a coco van for my birthday last year. That oh, was nice. Very fun. <laughs> Preserving things and pickling things is obviously mm-hmm. a big thing of yours. Um, when did that start? Have you always been a huge pickle head? <laughs> <laughs> I have always been. I was thinking about this the other day. I have always been into pickling. My dad has an allotment at home, so he always grew stuff and a big kind of yearly ritual was pickling the entire crop of shallots from the allotment in my head I used to always sit and help him peel them and like go through the whole process I don't think I did at all I think (laughs) yeah do a couple and then get bored while he spent the entire afternoon in the garden peeling them but I always loved those and I always liked sharp flavours like pickles and chutneys and sauces and stuff. So when I started cooking professionally, it was something I was quite interested in, but I didn't really get massively into it until... Towards the end of when I was living in Norwich, we started... Mm. um, Me and my partner started a pop-up called Pickle and Smoke, which was like uh, sort of Turkish barbecue food. So I started doing a lot of pickling then, into our pickles for the, the YBF Awards 
then. But then I got really into it all kind of much more. I read much more about it and got much more experts on it while we were working at Darsham because Darsham Nurseries, because mm. then so we had our own produce, it grew their own things. So you'd end up with these seasonal gluts. So mm. like, well, I've got 20 kilos of green tomatoes. What am I going to do with 20 kilos of green tomatoes? Pickle them generally. So Obviously. that's when I got really into it. As someone who really enjoys eating pickles but has never really made them, I, something I've, I've always wondered like, is does a true pickle not have vinegar in it? Does it have to be lacto fermented or can. I've always wondered about what's the differentiation. What is a true pickle? There's quite a lot of confusion in that, just in the terminology. Really, yeah. Because generally in Britain, if you say pickle, it means a vinegar pickle. Um, yeah. We tend to use these like pickled like, onions, pickled or, onions, yeah. or pickled eggs, pickled eggs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> or even like those kind of really sharp gherkins you get in chip shops. Yes. Um, so they almost always be vinegar pickles. So when you say that, when you say pickles here, that's tend to be what you mean and then we tend to use the word ferments or or lacto fermented pickles for other ones but yeah in, in america and in a lot of the continent when they say uh, a pickle they always mean a lacto fermented dill pickled cucumber uh, <laughs> that's always what a pickle is so um, what differentiates kind of taste wise a fermented dill pickle and a vinegar pickled cucumber well vinegar pickles will tend to be a lot sharper and they also tend to use quite a bit of sugar in them as well so fermented pickles is they're still sharp, but it's a kind of milder because it's lactic acid rather than the acetic acid. It's quite a milder kind of tang to it, and then you also get that like slightly funky fermented flavour as well. What are your the top five pickles you've ever eaten? <laughs> Tough one. Um, well, I really like those Lebanese pickle turnips you get in kebab shops. They're pretty bloody good. Fermented tomatoes. It's from an Olia Hercules recipe. It's one of the first things I kind of fermented. They go fizzy, kind of sweet and funky there. Pretty delicious. I ate some amazing... Fer- we were in Georgia last year and some amazing ferments there, like fermented uh, green tomatoes and fermented mm. carrots. And just They like pickle and ferment everything. Next it was level, amazing. Yeah. Um, you can't really beat a cornichon. <laughs> Tiny little cornichon. Bit of ham. I really like the... Uh, the ham and cornichon baguettes you get press them on airports <laughs> it's always my treat when we go <laughs> when we go traveling and i guess i should probably say my dad's pickled shallots as well in case he listens to this because that did start everything <laughs> it did yeah that's where it all started <laughs> are there any pickles you have eaten and tried to recreate and you just cannot better like the trashy shop bought one i've tried and tried with pickled onions to produce something that isn't made with super harsh malt vinegar and like cheap salt and you can't really you just have to make them like that (laughs) thanks very much to tom you can find him on Twitter and Insta at Tom Eagle, and that's Tom with a T-H. And you can find his blog In Search of Lost Time, that's the herb time, at TomEagle.com. His book, First Catch, is out this week and available from all good booksellers. You can find Lekka on Twitter and Insta too. I will share some pictures of the sauerkraut I made for this episode. Um, that is, if it doesn't totally fail and go mouldy. Um, I may be even able to tell you how it tastes. Who knows? If you enjoy Lekka, please do share it with people you know who might enjoy it. 
that's people who are into food or people into podcasts um, just any any shares are much appreciated and uh, a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts are also very very much appreciated thank you so much for listening back next time